It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, howdy, partner. Howdy, partner. You'd make a great cowboy, you know. Mm, I was a big Dallas fan as a child, so maybe that's more accurate than you know. You've never actually rustled cattle, though. It's now the time to disclose my part-time <laughs> cowboy past. Uh, no, it's not really me. You can't really see me, can you? How do, how do you fare on horseback? Oh. <laughs> I mean, no way, don't you think? I mean, like, it's hard enough to ride a bike. I mean, you know, yeah. like, you know, a live animal. I mean, I just think I really, that's not for me. Not, nor me either, nor me. I'm, I'm very rigid on a horse. So we wouldn't have been good on Dallas. I, I could have been possibly some kind of Cliff Barnes character. I was quite related to Cliff Barnes. He was the lovable loser. Yeah, that's me too. He was my favourite character. He 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 also endeared himself to me because he used to really like Chinese takeaway and I like a good Chinese takeaway myself. <laughs> it was his favourite food was Chinese takeaway. It's very important to see yourself reflected on the screen as a child and, and, and find role models. Yeah, that's a good point. So I see you more as a, a Bobby Ewing. Oh, Maybe one day you're going to sort of wake up and find me in the shower and realise you're not married to Sarah at all and you're married <laughs> to me. It's all been a dream. And it's a cold shower. You're listening yeah, to Taylor Swift. Exactly. And I'm shouting Ronsonman. I tell you what, though, you look, I know, I'm sure this, lots of people have said this to you, you look nowadays like Miss Ellie's second husband, Clayton <laughs> Farlow. Wasn't he like a, a septuagenarian? Well, you're a bit, you're slightly younger, but, you know, Howard Keel Yes, Clayton of Farlow. course. Of course he did. Yeah, well, maybe we should go on a pilgrimage to Southwark together. I'd, I'd be think? up for it. It's my 50th birthday in a couple of years. So, uh, yeah, yeah, there's something to look forward to. Now, can I tell you about uh, some good news? Yeah. Do you remember me saying we have a mouse problem in our house, but because I'm a vegetarian and because I'm sort of into, my, into animals, I didn't want to get the exterminators in. I'm getting a certain amount of pressure from Sarah about you it. You turned to social media, didn't you? I did, on your advice, uh, and asked our listeners. 
And I received an email from Vanessa Penrose. The subject line was moral mouse elimination. And she said, after living 20 years in an old country house with chronic mouse visitations and a husband who resolutely insisted on protecting the right to life of the mice, we found that ultrasonic deterrents do seem to make a difference, but only the very best quality, uh, in brackets, pricey ones, and make sure you don't skimp and put one in every room. So I ordered a bunch of them, 10 of them, in fact. I've gone round the house plugging them in, and it seems to have dealt with the mouse problem. Wow. So they emit this ultra high-pitched sound. Which you can't hear. And the mice don't like it. Well, let me tell you something. You can. I think I can hear it. Eek. <laughs> How does it go? <laughs> Eek. Yes, like that. I and, and I've convinced myself that I have such youthful hearing that I'm able to detect this high-pitched sound as I go about my life in the house. What's the humane answer to an ant problem? We've got a slight ant problem. I, If it was me, here's what I would do. I yeah. would make a trail of sweets going from your house to some neighbours, maybe like three doors down, and then let it be their problem. <laughs> I, don't, I think that's not very social, that's not very social okay. behaviour. Okay, I, to the I, park? I, what about all the way to the park? What, you think they don't know their way to the park? I'm saying you need to make the park more appealing than your house. Right, okay. I'll 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 take it under advisement. What happened to the EU sugar mountain? Could you is that still a, is that still a thing? Or was it a butter mountain? I think it was a butter mountain. I think I think we're sort of clutching at straws. Okay, okay. Well, I won't suggest a, an ant trail to the EU sugar mountain then. No, I think it's a, but look, it's the, there's no bad ideas in this intro, is there? Well, <laughs> there are there are some bad ideas. There's no good ideas in this intro. Yeah, there's no good ideas. Should we talk about what we're talking about though? Yes. This week we're talking about investing in human infrastructure, and I think it's a really fascinating topic. At the end of March, President Biden announced a two trillion dollar jobs plan, pledging to invest in infrastructure to rebuild the American economy. Now, the plan included investment in physical infrastructure like roads, bridges and airports, but also money for adult social care, which was presented as an investment in human infrastructure, which can also include things like education and childcare. And this has sparked a big debate in the United States about the meaning of infrastructure, which could have bigger implications for economic policy more widely. So we're going to be talking to Julie Cashin from the Century Foundation in the United States about Biden's plan and why this debate is so important. And then we're talking to somebody who's really, really a great, smart person who I know, Sue Himmelfight, about the relevance this has for us in the UK and why ch changing our idea of infrastructure could transform how we think about public spending, about economic policy and about a whole range of issues, including our economy in the future. It was very sweet how you felt the need to tell us that you know her. She's a friend of my mum's, actually. It was very endearing. Yeah, it was yeah. a name drop. And a cheerful person is Eileen Jones. Now, Eileen is the author of a book called How Parkrun Changed Our Lives, which was launched last month with a 300-mile COVID-safe book relay from Cumbria to London. What's your reason to be cheerful, Geoffrey? Well, I have been out and about in the world for the first time in a, a long time and just getting to go into a branch of Paper Chase, who we're in no way commercially affiliated with, they're not a sponsor, but just getting to go into a shop felt kind of exciting to me. I was buying stuff for my son's birthday party and it was quite weird because we were well into April now and most of what they were selling in there was reduced Christmas decorations because wow. obviously they just press pause just before Christmas. And did it feel sort of therapeutic? A little bit. I mean, I'm in no rush really to go out and start moving around the world particularly. Sarah's going out 
um, with some friends for a meal. She's going to sit outside under a blanket like a nana and eat a meal. Wow. That's, uh, that's me. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is about you because you gave me the best thank you ever for a <laughs> present. Uh, I bought you a, a nice jumper. No, it's a, I just want to say it's a really nice jumper. This is well, you're, think... you're very nice to say that, but you are a brilliant present giver, and I'm a pretty crap present giver. You are not. But but I bought you a nice jumper, and you sent me the most lovely song about the jumper. I mean, honestly, I've never had somebody send me a song about a present I gave them. And actually, we were engaged in an arduous family bike ride, and there was a really br- outbreak of bad humour. I mean, including, I might say, among... <laughs> Not just about my children, put it that way, and and it, <laughs> and it and it cheered everybody up. Well, I made a little video of myself wearing this jumper and set it to the song. It's an old novelty record, I think, from the nineteen fifties, called "This Pullover" by Jess Conrad. Now, there I was thinking you'd written the song yourself, especially. <laughs> I was worried about that. I thought, with no context, does Ed just think I've written and recorded him a song about my pullover? Because it does have romantic undertones. Well, it has. I did think it had a very sort of sweet ending about how much she loved me too. I thought, oh, uh, um, uh, I can't quite remember the line, but yeah, no, I didn't. You know, remember, I'm culturally quite sort of, you know, uninformed, and so I'll be honest, it's not one that uh, ever crops up on the 100 most classic songs of all time list. No, it's not in the hit parade, as I believe it's known. Reasons to be cheerful: a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to start by finding out ex- exactly uh, what is happening in the US with this debate over infrastructure with Senior Policy Advisor at the National Domestic Workers Alliance and Director for Women's Economic Justice at the Century Foundation, Julie Cashin. Hello. Hi, it's nice to be with you. It's it's great to have you here. And we were just saying before we started recording, you have, we've been doing, obviously, with the pandemic, uh, remote podcast for over a year now. You have by far the best backdrop we have seen on zoom so far i love parks and recreation and leslie nope's office seems like the right place to do calls from <laughs> you're very impressed aren't you ed i'm so impressed honestly i think i think julie just knocks it out of the park she just wins the award <laughs> by such a, i mean by a long long distance it has to be said jeff don't you absolutely think? yeah yeah the bar has been set i mean she's the yeah. one to beat <laughs> yeah. yeah um now julie i wondered if we could start just by uh asking you to give our listeners an overview of president biden's job plan and and particular these um provisions on human infrastructure President Biden's jobs plan, it includes provisions to repair bridges and roads and invest in broadband and clean drinking water. Um, but specifically on care, it invests $400 billion to expand access to home and community-based services for seniors and people with disabilities. It also has $25 billion for childcare facilities and building childcare supply. And so this is incredibly important because um, before COVID-19, our country was already in the midst of a huge caregiving crisis. We actually just never built a caregiving system. Um, you know, so, so as we think about people who need care for as they're aging, supporting people with disabilities to live independently. Uh, you know, we just did not have a system. And on childcare, we had a very short lived publicly funded childcare system during World War Two, because our leaders wanted women to go to the factories while men were off fighting the war. But that expired after that. And so for decades, we have been lacking a care infrastructure in the United States. And so this bill, this this proposal uh, puts out there 
really important provisions for caregiving. And it's really significant that this is in there as infrastructure. It's very much a, a, a departure from previous infrastructure packages. Is there any precedent for it? I can't think of any precedent for it. In fact, I can't think of precedent for doing this much for caregiving in general, right? So whether it's infrastructure or not, acknowledging that building a care infrastructure is key to jobs, to families, to economic recovery, right? Like that acknowledgement unto itself is unprecedented. Investing in care jobs not only gets you better jobs, but also enables parents to work, enables family caregivers to work. And so it's actually a two for one. If you invest in a care job, you invest in that job and the additional jobs that that family members are then able to hold. And is that what most of the debate has centered on, the the semantics about whether it's uh, defined as infrastructure or uh, other debates just about the, I guess, the ambition of a, a program like this? The United States for decades has had this cultural fight about whether family care, you know, caring for your family members is a personal responsibility or a collective one. You know, and it really it goes back to our days are our, our really horrifying days of slavery, where you had, you know, enslaved women were doing the domestic work, were doing the caregiving. And you know, we then built laws, even like our labor laws early on excluded domestic work from labor rights and protections. And so we've long said, you know, the work at the home, the work of caring for family members, the work of caring for children is, you know, this, this undervalued piece of work. And it's, it's really tied up in sexism and racism and this assumption that, the unpaid work of mothers or the underpaid work of women of color, of immigrant women, is going to handle the work of care. And this represents a shift, right? This, what the Biden administration has done represents a shift in our understanding that care is a collective responsibility, that investing in it on the government level and the federal level actually helps everyone, not just those individual families. Julie, it's really striking reading the American debate on this, which is the bemusement of various people that Biden would have, Joe Biden would have the sort of audacity to try and quote unquote pretend that care is part of infrastructure. And it's like people just want to say, well, of course care isn't part of infrastructure because it never has been before and why should it be? It's also without even engaging on the sort of, well, does it have an economic return? Yes. Is it a public good for society? Yes. You know, that there's that there's aspects to this that, that, you know, make it as important, if not more important than investing in bridges or roads or whatever. I mean, tell us a little bit about how you viewed the debate. <laughs> Yes, I agree that it's it's just a misplaced debate. It's it doesn't actually it's not based on the reality of what you know undergirds our economy. Uh, there was a great uh, article in the New York Times this week from Molly Kinder and Martha Ross, and they wrote the care economy is being recognized for what it is: invisible scaffolding that allows American workers to actually get the job done. Right? I mean, this is the scaffolding that holds us up. It's been the behind-the-scenes work that has not gotten recognized. That is definitely not compensated for its complexity and value. And you know. If we think about 
our our economic recovery, right? We have choices. We could just invest in building roads and bridges. And then what we're going to see is lots of men, probably mostly white men, you know, getting those jobs. Because if we don't have a childcare infrastructure, if we don't have a caregiving infrastructure, it's going to be a lot harder for women to be part of that, right? And so it's both that we need to invest in these jobs, which are primarily held by women, but also that if we want women to be going back to work and be part of building America in a physical way, we need to provide the care that they need so they can have those jobs. Do you think this is a deliberate decision by the Biden administration to, if you like, pick this fight about what infrastructure really is? Or do you think it's just a sort of of necessity because they wanted to make these investments. I mean, how, how, what's the sort of political decision making that was going on there, do you think? I think it's a really smart decision on the Biden administration's part. I think that they understand that, you know, the United States has had this she session, right, where women have been impacted by the economics of the pandemic more than anyone else, right? And so they understand that if you want to build back, you need to invest in the types of jobs that women hold and the supports that women need to be a, you know, equal part of the workforce. And so I think it was a smart decision to say, yeah, care is infrastructure. It is because it's just, you know, as you said, it's about economic recovery. It's about jobs. And so I think they're acknowledging it. I think the people who are finding fault with that argument are people who are using it as a red herring to say, no, 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 that's too much money. We shouldn't spend money on this. We shouldn't spend money on caring for seniors on, you know, these jobs held by immigrant women. I think I think that's where it's coming from. And more broadly, and you've made reference to this already, what would you like to see happen to build a more comprehensive care infrastructure in the US? What what elements would it include? I think we need a home and community based system that supports, you know, both seniors, people with disabilities, the family caregivers who care for them, and the paid caregivers who work in those sectors. Uh, and that means that there has to be public money for higher compensation for that workforce, for supporting them to have more of a voice at work, supporting them to be able to join a union. Um, I think that we need a universal childcare and early learning system that provide support for families when and where they need it, that supports healthy children's developments, um, that, you know, treats early educators with the respect and dignity for their valuable work. Um, we need, you know, to pass paid family and medical leave legislation so that everyone can have time to bond with their new child or, you know, recover from a serious illness or be there for their loved ones. You know, these are things that the United States does not have in place right now. And I think that that's, you know, it's it's a really depressing fact uh, that we have just not built a workplace that works for everyone. We, we have workplace rules that basically say if you're a caregiver, like you're, you know, you're out of luck. And obviously, you've been saying, Julie, that these are longstanding issues. But how do you think the pandemic has changed the nature of this debate? How, how has poor care infrastructure exacerbated the problems of the in the current crisis? I think the pandemic has shown a light on what many of us have known was a problem all along, but not everybody recognized, you know, so I think one of the things that happened is women of color in general, black women, immigrant women, Latino women have long been struggling with this, you know, 
challenge of managing their care and work responsibilities. I think for many white women, especially, or women of, of greater means right now, this moment when schools shut down and these school-age children were at home and everyone had to figure out what to do about that, I think that made a huge difference, that people started to realize that school is actually providing this important child supervision function, right? It's not just about education. It's also about being the place where your children are safe and nurtured while you are working. And so without that, millions more families were impacted by that, you know, both men and women. You know, in addition, more than 2 million women are out of the workforce from when before the pandemic started. We'd actually gotten to a place where we were near equal in our labor force participation right before the pandemic hit. And now we're down by more than 2 million women in the workforce. And a big part of that is these care responsibilities that they had to either reduce their hours or leave the workforce altogether because they didn't have the care that they needed. Well, look, Julie Cashin, it's really inspiring uh, to talk to you. It gives us cause for uh, optimism. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations once again on your backdrop. Thank you so much for having me and for the victory in my Zoom background. <laughs> So to talk further about this whole issue of infrastructure and social infrastructure, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Sue Himmelwhite, who is an Emeritus Professor of Economics at the Open University and a member of the Women's Budget Group. And as I said in the introduction, somebody I know well, a friend of my mum's. Sue, thank you so much for joining us. Not at all. Very pleased to be here. Um, should we just start by asking this question, which is, how has infrastructure traditionally been defined and, and and why is that important for our listeners to understand? Infrastructure is something that has benefits beyond its direct users. So traditionally you think of something like a bridge. Well, that will be useful for people who want to get from one side of the water to the other, but it will also have wider benefits to society as a whole. Um, and the importance of that idea is that, therefore, the the government, the community as a whole, may want to invest in it. Um, if if you just leave it to the people who would directly benefit, you may not be able to make, raise enough money to do it properly. Um, so it's a good idea that you get some community involvement in funding those things that have community benefits. And And is that the same as thinking that, if something is infrastructure, it has a sort of economic return. Well, I think partly the idea is who is the economic return to? So in a lot of things, the economic return is to those people who decide to spend money on it. So if you were building a factory, the economic return might be to the owner of the factory from what they can sell as a result of this. But in the case of something described as infrastructure, the economic return may be to more than the direct users, more than the people you can right. actually charge for using it. And therefore, there might be, it will be underfunded unless there is some collective funding put into it. And this has been important and is important today, isn't it? Because governments take a different view in relation to borrowing for capital spending, i.e. infrastructure spending, than they do in relation to so-called current spending, which which is sort of and I don't know whether this is the same the same categorization capital spending and infrastructure, but 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 there's definitely a favoritism towards capital spending in terms of how you can raise money for it. Yes. 
Yes, that's right. But I think that's based on a different distinction, which is that we spend a, the the state spends a lot of money on things that benefit us directly this year, and investment is is spending that whose benefits come in future years. Now, in general, what the government will spend on is, is things that have collective benefits. So it will tend to be on um, infrastructure for the future. In, in, so its future spending will tend to be on infrastructure. So we, we use that phrase, investment in infrastructure. The investment means it's for the future and the infrastructure means that it has collective benefits. So let's talk about what is called social infrastructure what do we mean when we talk about it and and why is it important to sort of give it proper priority? I mean by social infrastructure, it's something that is infrastructure in the sense that it has benefits beyond its direct users, but is is producing, is not a physical product, is producing something that is, whose benefits are felt in terms of society. So the particular examples the clearest examples would be education, healthcare services, care services more generally, training, and so on. The argument that we would make is that just like, if you like, bridges or roads, the sort of care system that we have, the, the education system, the health system, also provide benefits not only to the direct users but to the society as a whole. Having a good care system, having a good health system, um, having a good education system is is important to many people who don't ever go to hospital or don't have children who are who are being educated. Um, having that system as a whole matters to us all in terms of the security with which we, we live our lives and the things that we don't need to be worrying about. So we would argue you should treat them a bit a bit like you treat bridges and physical forms of infrastructure and it should be seen as a collective expenditure and again that it's also for the future. So if we if we educate our children well the benefits come in the future. They don't just come that these children are looked after this year but they will be better citizens hopefully in the future, more productive citizens perhaps too. Similarly for care services, not just the benefits for this year, but the benefits in terms, for example, of good preventative care in not having to spend so much on care services in the future. And I think the one where this is most recognised is in terms of training. So training for particular jobs, the whole point of it is for the future. So there's two claims here that you're making. One is that it's infrastructure because it's got these wider benefits. But secondly, it's investment because it has an economic return. And therefore, thinking, well, we need to invest in bridges or transport because that's going to have an economic return in the future. But childcare can be sort of is less important. Childcare is just an expenditure and it's just a cost is missing a massive massive issue yes exactly and so a lot of the expenditure that we think of as as investment in social infrastructure is classified as current expenditure and current expenditure seems to be seen as just a cost not spending in order to have a benefit from it and that's quite a big problem isn't it (laughs) because 
it means because when you you know and you will come on to talk about your work on this but but if you're thinking about investment in childcare or social care or education i mean that could have a bigger return than a transport project but it's it's sort of disfa- is disfavored by the systems we have yeah exactly so you get underinvestment in the sort of in in social infrastructure you get underinvestment in those types of things in in people's abilities in society's ability to uh, regenerate itself versus the sort of physical um, infrastructure that is seen as the normal way if you want to stimulate an economy you build hs2 or something like that and this approach to infrastructure it perpetuates gender inequality then if if those things can't be counted as infrastructure and talk, talk to us a little bit about the, the the ways in which that manifests one of the obvious things if you think about it is the types of jobs that are going to be created so if you spend a lot of money on construction projects which is what most of the physical infrastructure requires, you're going to employ a lot of men. Then the construction industry is one of the most male-dominated of any industry. If you, if you spend it on social infrastructure projects, you will actually employ more women. It's not quite that the social infrastructure sector, health, care, education and so on, are not quite as... as female-dominated as the construction industry is male-dominated, but nevertheless, they are. And then if you also look to the jobs, if when you think about a stimulus proposal, you're not just looking at the jobs directly created, you're looking at the jobs indirectly created in other industries. And if you look at the jobs indirectly created by investment construction, they also tend to be male-dominated, the, the firms that supply construction industry. But if you look at the jobs created by investment in care, which is the one that I know of because we've done a study of this, the, the jobs created are much more evenly distributed between men and women. And then if you look at one of the really important parts of the stimulus is, is not only the jobs created directly and indirectly, but also those created what are called the induced multiplier effects, the jobs created by the spending of the people employed in those industries. Just because there are so many more jobs created in care, you get many more induced jobs created. We looked at, you know, what would happen if the government spent 1% of GDP on one thing or the other? And we, we could show that under, with, under current conditions you'd produce, I think it was about 2.7 times as many jobs from investing in care as you would from investing in construction. And in fact, you produce about six times as many jobs for women from investing in care as you would from investing in construction. But because there were so many more jobs created overall, you'd actually even produce more jobs for men from investing in care than you would from investing. Why is that, Sue? Because the, although a smaller proportion of them would go to men, there are so many more that in total that you'd, you'd find... Is that because they're more labour-intensive jobs in care? Is that One of the reasons you get more jobs is towards... because they're more labour-intensive, but also because you get a, a huge induced effect due to the fact that you've employed lots of people and they go out and spend their wages. And that creates jobs all over the economy. And what do you make of, of what is happening in the, the US with this debate on the shift in the meaning of infrastructure? Do you think it is a sign that sort of more widely that conversation is changing? I hope so. 
I don't know. I mean, it has been it it has it has happened through a lot of of careful work by feminist economists to make to make that point. Um, and and in fact, uh, Obama had a small element of that in what he did, but his his whole approach was so much more cautious that it didn't didn't have the same um, effect. I think it's a really good sign, you know, if the US of all places can do it, that the US could pick up this change in vocabulary is just fantastic for us. We have a we have a utopia on the podcast with me as as a benign leader, Ed as a puppet prime minister, and I hope you as minister for infrastructure. It's extremely, it's extremely male, the Jeffocracy. Well, this is this is, I want to correct this inst- <laughs> instantly with some big changes to infrastructure, how it's defined, policies around it, spending. What what is the first thing you would do on day one as minister for infrastructure? And you've got complete carte blanche to, yes. in this world. I think I'd set up two inquiries. I set up one into the um, private e- into private equity in running care homes because we have a system in which the the care homes have become assets like everything else that are not one run for the benefit of residents but as ways of making money in quite dubious circumstances. So that would be one. The second one I would do is set up another inquiry into how to train care workers better. Because the care, care work is seen as the ultimate unskilled work. And it's not unskilled at all. It involves a lot of skills and a lot of skills that need to be re- that are not recognised because they're just, they're just seen as, well, care work is what everybody does for themselves and then women do for no, for no pay for somebody else. And actually, to, to have good quality care, we need really good quality training. Now, at the same time as that... I'd be raising care wages and conditions. And Sue, you you also have had a, got a proposal, and this is why the Jeffocracy has wide latitude for you, uh, for a care-led recovery. Mm-hmm. Just briefly talk us through what that would mean. So, you, you, you know, as they used to say on the game shows that Jeff and I used to watch all of that that you've just said is all safe and it's going to happen right <laughs> but you can now you can now you, that's in the bank now you can add to it all right well I think, that, I think actually what I was talking about was the care-led recovery right, um, right. so I mean the, the thing that I haven't got to was all this is going to cost money and we need a, we need a substantial increase in funding but I it would be an investment it would be an investment that pays off in terms of the well-being of people. But the thing that the pandemic has shown is how crucial the care industry is and how we can raise money for lots of things. So why don't we raise money for something that we've learnt is really so important? Well, look, Sue Himmelweit, it's been brilliant to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us and uh it's been a it's been an education an economics one oh one experience, at least for well for Jeff and for me actually. Thanks very much. So what did you think? Well, I I very much enjoyed it. I felt like I learned a lot because for those of us without economics degrees, uh, a, a lot of this stuff is is pretty unfathomable and it and it really, you know, uh, uh, Sue especially did such a great job of explaining um the difference between this proposal and how infrastructure is traditionally thought of, I think kind of, am I right in thinking what's exciting about it isn't just what Joe Biden has proposed. 
which is huge in terms of America, but still lags behind a lot of European countries in many areas, the UK included. But it's what it could mean for the way that governments think about spending in the future and what counts as infrastructure. And that shift could be highly significant. I think you're right. There is a wider significance because generally governments are more open to borrowing for investments uh, than they are for, for things that are not seen as investment. And therefore, how you regard care is absolutely fundamental to the kind of money that you're willing to put behind it. And once it starts being seen as part of as an investment for the future, I think it does transform the approach that governments are going to take to it. So there is real significance to this. Look, I'm also very, very struck um, that, and, and actually there's a chapter on this in my, in my book, uh, about the extent to which sort of gender and the and who does these jobs, these care jobs, and how they've traditionally been done, the fact they were often unpaid work, all of those things has massive sort of impact on the way this is regarded. And and I was really struck reading the American coverage of this that there's almost it's, as I said to Julie, there's like bemusement that this could be regarded as infrastructure. It's like, well, this is just you know a liberal wish list, this, that, and the other. Well. Not really. I mean, this is this is like this is fundamental. I thought Julie put it incredibly well. You know, what did she say? The scaffolding. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. I think she said invisible scaffolding. I mean, it's completely right, isn't it? Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you've got thoughts about human infrastructure or ideas for future episodes, we really want to hear from you. We read all the emails you send. You can find us, cheerfulpodcast.com, or as Jeff might be amused by me saying, www.cheerfulpodcast.com, or even http colon double slash www.cheerfulpodcast.com. Um, this one uh, comes from Jack Pilcher May, and it's entitled Working From Home, and it relates to a 
an episode a couple of weeks back. Hi, Ed and Jeff. Listening to your recent episode on homeworking, I couldn't help think that we need to discuss how an expectation of homeworking needs to be supported by employers financially beyond just providing an ergonomic chair and computer monitor. For example, my flatmate has worked from home for the whole of the pandemic, but her room doesn't have space for a desk since she planned to always work in the office a short bike ride away. The only only communal living space space we have in our small but lovely rented London flat is the kitchen where she's been working each day, naturally limiting how the rest of us can use the space. You can't boil the kettle if she's in a Zoom meeting. Going forward, if companies are going to expect employees to work from home, even part-time, it seems fair to me there should be financial compensation for doing so. The salary bump would be needed to pay for the increased rent on a larger room with space for a desk, in my flatmate's case, or a more expensive property with a spare room to turn into a home office. And if companies are saving money on office space while increasing financial burdens on their employees by asking them to work, by asking them to work from home part-time, this should be addressed in pay so that workers don't get the short straw yet again. Lots of love, Jack. I think it is a... I think we met. We obviously talked about this on the episode, but I think it is a really important point, isn't it? Yeah, it's so important, and it's interesting to think about what companies not needing that much office space or as much office space could then do to the property market, given how obsessed we oh, are yes. in this country oh, with yes. the property market. Because theoretically, it could make it a lot easier for young people to live in cities, but. All the prices, presumably, would have to everything would have to go down to do that. I think he makes a really good point, though, Jack. I think it's really it's just too easy to sort of just romanticise the homeworking thing without thinking through what he was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. I was very excited to see that we have received an email on an environmental theme from Greta T. No, ah! my goodness, she's finally found us. It's Greta Talbot Jones. Now, Greta, we are equally. Uh, we're equally exactly. excited That's to receive I mean. an email from Greta you. Talbot Jones. I watched uh, watched a, a, an interview of Greta Thunberg being uh, interviewed this morning. Guess what she got for eighteenth birthday? A reasons to be cheerful piece of merch. <laughs> <laughs> Close. She got some Brussels sprouts, some walnuts, and some bubble wrap to pop. I would have been surprised if you guessed that. I like a good Brussels sprout myself. Oh, I love a Brussels sprout. I think they're underrated vegetables. Me too, me too. Yeah. I can just like do a load in the oven and then sit eating them out of a bowl. I love them. Anyway, this Greta. Yes. Do get back in touch, Greta, and let us know what you got for your birthday and, and your feelings on Brussels sprouts. But Greta says, uh, I'm a regular listener based in Islington. I interchange between you guys and talking politics. That's what Ed does as well. Runcy man. <laughs> yep. Um and she says, uh, I, I enjoy the strong themes of climate change and resource management flowing through a fair few of your episodes. I have a sister who I'm a big fan of, obviously, and she's done some very interesting research around granting nature, more specifically rivers, legal rights. In 2017, New Zealand granted legal personhood to uh, the Wanganui River. She did a PhD on this and is now a lecturer at Victoria University in New Zealand. She's doing further research in behavioural economics and its intersection with environment and policy. Whilst on my stroll today, I thought an episode discussing various ways to uh, uh, legislatively protect natural resources could be interesting. Interesting email. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I love it when people suggest uh, an idea for an episode that I don't think we would have accidentally happened across ourselves. Definitely, we'll look into it. Yeah. Maybe we could go kayaking as research. Or maybe we could record the episode while kayaking. It might be more risky than going on the bus. I think so. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast.
And our cheerful person this week is the author of a new book, How Parkrun Changed Our Lives. Of course, Ed, you were chomping at the bit to talk to her as soon as you heard about it. It's Eileen Jones. Hello. Hi. Hello, everybody. Hello. And you join us from Cumbria. You were just telling us before we press record, you're looking out of your window at Ambleside at the moment. Yeah. From my window, I look onto the slopes of Red Screes, which is... um, one of the higher peaks near Ambleside. And after this, I'll be running up a a small mountain called Loughrig, which is one of my favourites. I do it every week. How far, how many miles is that or kilometres? Well, to the top of Loughrig and back from my house, it's about only about nine kilometres, but it's it's really steep. So it it takes me quite a long time these days. That could be your next thing, Ed. You haven't done any uphill running yet, have you? I have to say, for me, Eileen, the word only nine kilometres was doing a lot of work, really. I mean, uh, I don't really think about it as only. I, I don't know whether, how, where, how Jeff feels about the word only in relation to, to nine kilometres. <laughs> One kilometre, nine, nine kilometres, it's all the same to me. Yeah. Eileen, be- before we get into the book and your park run story, the other thing you're currently looking at, apart from the beautiful view out of your window, is your computer screen, where as a park run aficionado, you have access to your fellow park runners. And, and you've, uh, you've taken the time to look up Ed. Yes, yes. Because along with the official part run statistics, if you download the uh, the special Chrome extension, you get all the extra information. Ed, you need to read my book to find this out. Um, wow. So it tells me that you've done 38 part runs in all, um, that at park run, therefore, you've run 190 kilometres. Um, you have a P index of three and a Wilson index of two. Again, you'll have to read the book. Um, your first park run was on Christmas Day, 2018. Um, you have travelled 37,595 kilometres to get to park runs in four different countries. Now, look, tell us how you first got involved in park run, um, Eileen. Well, I, I used to do a lot of racing on the fells. Um, I didn't always live in the Lake District, but I used to travel up here a lot and when I was fitter and younger and I would race on the mountains. and It, it was wonderful. Um, but as I got older, it wasn't so much fun anymore because I was right at the back of the pack and I started to feel guilty for the, the marshals standing on the summits in the cold waiting for me to come through. And um, when you're right off the back of the pack in a long race and you don't see anybody for an hour or so, it's not really much fun. So I stopped racing and I still train on the fells. But then someone took me along to a park run in Manchester and I just thought, oh, this is the this is the bee's knees. You know, it was a decent distance. It was manageable every week. And I was nowhere near the back. There were people around me that I was having a little bit of a battle with. Um, and it literally, that moment onwards, I just became an obsessive. So I set one up. I helped to set one up here in the lakes at Fellfoot at Windermere. That was in 2014. And I'm still on the um, the volunteer team there now. And how how did you decide to turn your passion for part run into a book then? What's the story behind that? Um, because I had nothing to do because of the pandemic. Um, I, work, I work for myself. I do publicity for tourism and heritage organisations here in the lakes. And they literally all shut, obviously. And so I was basically unemployed and and the weather was beautiful and I did a lot of long walks and more running. And after a while, I just thought, I've got to do something. You know, my brain's going to sleep. And I just woke up one morning with a line in my head about part run being like a religion 
because I'm evangelistic about it, and I'm sure Ed is, that turned into the first sentence of chapter one. So I, I woke up with this idea and I just sat down and started typing and, and I didn't stop. It just it just wrote itself almost. You set out on writing this book a year ago. Has your view about any part of Parkrun changed in the time of writing this book? In other words, what have you learned writing this book? I've realised that it is far more than just putting one foot in front of the other in a park on a Saturday morning. I knew, I instinctively knew myself what I got out of it and what a lot of other people did. But I think what I've learned is the um, proven benefits, the, the research that's been done um, to show that even volunteering can have a massive impact on physical and mental health, that there are now 1,500 GP practices prescribing parkrun for people with a range of, of wow. medical conditions um, that people who are socially isolated which means it's been particularly hard for for the, the last year um, but people who are you know lonely people who are grieving people who don't necessarily fit in with others comfortably um, find a home at parkrun it, it's for ev everybody but the research that i did brought this home to me very, very strongly. And tell us about, because you didn't just launch the book online, you had a particular way of doing it. Tell us about the relay. This is a publicist's flair yeah. coming into well, play. Yeah, here. well, th there is that. So I'd thought about, you know, the, t the traditional way is go to a bookshop and you sign a few books and offer a few glasses of wine, but there were no bookshops open. And I had hoped that Parkrun itself might be up and running by the time the book came out, but then that became clear it wouldn't happen. Um, and, but I'd thought, you know, if it does, if, if we could do a, a launch at Bushy Park where it all started, that would be appropriate. So I'd got this notion in my head, let's take the book to Bushy Park, let's go to Bushy, and we're runners. How do we get there? Well, we run. Um, and so I just started to recruit people and I got as far as Lancaster without any difficulty because I know enough people in, in my own area. But we could only have people run close to their own locality because of the restrictions. And we could only have a maximum of two on each leg. So I found a, a woman I'd met at a couple of park runs who's an ambassador. That's one of the senior volunteers. And she took control of the next two areas of the country. Oh, by, the, by this time, I'd um, ha got hold of a friend who can create wonderful maps because I knew where Bushy Park was. You know, I get in my car and drive down the M6 and M40. But how would a pedestrian do it? So Liz created a pedestrian map. We divided the country into seven regions and then through social media recruited coordinators for each region and then runners for each leg within that. And we had to turn down hundreds of people who wanted to be part of it because they all wanted to be part of something bigger than themselves again. And, you know, I've made friends whom I've not actually met in real life yet. How long did the relay take? It took exactly seven, well, seven days. We, we set off at nine o'clock on the Friday morning from Fellfoot um, and we ran 330 miles, not all in 5K segments. That would have been logistically a bit too challenging and I didn't want people having to stop and change over at the, in the middle of a road or whatever. So people chose their own distances. Um, a, a local TV reporter here just ran a mile with the TV camera. Um, a, a vicar ran 11 miles because he's training for a marathon. So 330 miles. We had 105 people taking part. 
um, over seven days and we they arrived. The, I was able to go down because I was working for it. I could drive down to, to London and I was there in Bushy Park when the final two runners turned up five minutes ahead of schedule. How about that? <laughs> it was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful moment. Ed, you've got a book coming out. Yeah. You, you need to get Eileen to arrange a relay race I, for you. I do. I do. Will you, part, will you be part of the relay, Jeff? Uh, yes, I'll be like the local TV reporter. I won't be like the vicar. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even do a, I couldn't even do a mile in a cassock, but uh, maybe I could do a hundred meters. <laughs> now, now, Eileen, we've got one other question to ask you, which is: This isn't the first book you've written; it's the second. Um, uh, and the first was a biography of a Labour leader, uh, not just any Labour leader, Neil Kinnock, written in nineteen ninety four. Tell us. (laughs) Well, it was the same rationale in a way. I had time on my hands. I wasn't working, writing. Actually, I just had my second baby. So I had a two-year-old and a newborn baby. So I did have my hands full, but only in the daytime. Um, And I just got a bee in my bonnet after the 92 election defeat and decided that, you know, I wanted to know more about Kinnock and I wanted to know why things had gone so wrong. And not enough had been written at that point. So I wrote to Jan, his um, PA, and said, I want to do this. And then Neil said he'd be happy to cooperate. And, um, yeah, so that was it. And I wrote to Neil the other night and said, um, just to let you know, because he's always been saying, when are you writing another book? I said, I've finally done it. you know. And he said, I'm sure you'll get a much bigger readership for park running than someone running for PM. And I thought that was quite funny. <laughs> Ed, you're not angling here for Eileen to write some kind of hagiography of you, are you? <laughs> Definitely. I want, I, want the ha- I want the hagiography. Well, look, Eileen, um, you and I... Um, and uh, sort of vicariously, Jeff, are we are definitely park running evangelists, but you, you are the biggest evangelist of them all, maybe. Um, uh, the book is How Park Run Changed Our Lives. Anyone who's been part of Park Run, I think, will ag- agree with it and look forward to reading it. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Lovely to talk to you all. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro. I've got a good film for you if you want one. Oh, yeah. I always like a good film. A new film on Amazon Prime called Palm Springs. You know, it's funny. It's a sort of Groundhog Day. We tried to watch it. Let me tell you something about you and your wife. You you don't give things long enough. You turn things off too quickly. I think Justine was really, like, not into it. I, I understand when people say you need to watch 12 episodes of this before it clicks, that that's too much of a commitment. But I think you're often turning stuff off 20 minutes, half an hour in, and you need to... No flicking. No flipping. No flipping, sorry, as the, as the late, great yeah. uh, Gary Shandling would have said. Yes. So what, what do we need to do to put a stop to that? Well, shall I have strong words with my wife and say that we've you, you, that Jeff says we've got to give it a chance? Yes, Here's what I think you and, you and your wife should do. You should get a burner phone. You've been watching too much Line of Duty, haven't you? <laughs> I have. You with your burner phones. Yeah, go on. It's only got my number in yeah. it. And I don't know whether it is you or Justine who's texting me. Anytime you have any kind of disagreement, you can send me a message via this phone and I will tell you my verdict, which side I come down on. But I won't know whose side it is. Interesting idea. Because I really want to impress her with my judgments, given you know her illustrious career as a judge. And you're sort of past the point of trying to impress me, right? Uh, <laughs> let's thank our let, let's thank our guests, Julie Cashin and Sue Himmelfight, 
And thanks to Eileen Jones, who was a delight. Her book is How Park Run Changed Our Lives. Emma Caution produces our podcast. We salute Emma for the fine job she does with often challenging material, source material every week. You're talking about me, aren't you? you you're talking about I, I me. I didn't want to drop you in. Yeah, it. you're talking yeah. challenging source material. I mean, brackets, Ed's crappy recordings. I thought I'd cracked it, though, no? Well... Without going into it too much, we did have to restart a whole section today after having recorded for 10 minutes. Yeah, that is... Okay, that is true. It's like sort of 10 minutes without an accident. We could have one of those <laughs> signs up. <laughs> 10 minutes without a recording. Do I get like a sort of jelly bean? Is it like a child sort of, you know... It should be like a child reward system. <laughs> yes. That I get a yeah, jelly bean yeah. or like two for... Or what? two yeah. jelly beans for every... T- I like jelly beans, by the way. For every 10 minutes. Well, there we go. Now we know how to uh, incentivize you. Yeah. So uh, thank you to Emma for the yeah. sterling work she does on that. Joel Pierce uh, does all the research, books all the guests, teaches us everything that we know, so we sound informed. And all Joel's research and backup material for the podcast are on the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. Joel is supported by Joe Kenyon. Also, a big hello! Hello! Foot forward. Uh, Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dents, and our artwork was designed by Henry Cull. He's been Clayton Farlow. He's been Bobby Ewing. And this has been The Oil Baron's Ball. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.